a certain monastery was enforcing a, uh, a vow of silence. And each monk could only utter two words every five years. Two words every five years. And those two words had to be spoken in the presence of an abbot. So this is a, a huge vow of silence. One of the monks, when given the opportunity uh, to come before the uh, abbot and say his two words, his words were, bad food. Well, another five years went by, and he got his opportunity to say two more words. And he came to the abbot and he said, bed hard. Well, he waited another five years, got to the abbot again, and his two words were, I quit. Well, the abbot said, you might as well quit. All you've been doing since you've got here is complain. It, complaints, really, it, it, sometimes it's an attitude. There are those people that are complainers, that they're going to complain about whatever. It doesn't matter. And then there are legitimate complaints. As we come into our study, I really... I, I'm just going to be uh, very honest with you on this. I was really, I was tempted to skip this chapter, skip this, this study, just because this can be a touchy subject. This is one that I think can jump, jump into because we're talking about ch- some church conflict. But I think the only way to really get into it and understand it is to see how the early church dealt with it. And as we jump into it, this is the first church conflict that we have recorded in Scripture, the very first thing, and I think this is pivotal. For the past several weeks, we've been studying about the growth uh, of the early church, uh, the very beginning of the, the church, and what all it was doing, how it was coming about. And we've been studying a lot here in the beginning of Acts. There on the day of Pentecost, it says that 3,000 were added. Chapter 2, verse 41. The believers continually began being added daily in 2.47. Even persecution could not stop the church. As we see in chapter 4, 5,000 men were added. Later we are told that multitudes of men and women were continuing to be added in 514. Until finally, as we jump into Acts 6, 6, 1 tells us that the, the disciples are multiplied. You may not be a math whiz. You may not have a whole lot of understanding about math. But you may have a grasp then on how this church is just booming. 3,000 plus 5,000 plus added daily, plus multiplied, is talking big, is talking affecting the world, or at least the community around them. And this is happening just within a short manner of time. This is probably some of the biggest growth the church saw was right at the beginning. And it was an impressive time. A lot of neat things happening. People lining up just so Peter's shadow can be cast on them and maybe from his shadow become healed. A lot of neat things happening. The apostles going out and teaching with boldness. You see how impressive this is? What kind of situation we're coming into that things are going good. We've already learned that Barnabas has sold a field and that the believers are sharing together in everything. That this is a good time to be in the church. Everyone's taken care of. No one thought that their own possessions were their own. They shared among themselves. This is the church, a unified church, a beautiful, beautiful picture. The devil, the devil had tried so many times to, to thwart the efforts of the church. He tried through persecution. He, he tried even through detaining the apostles. 
with the Jewish leaders, remember, circling up the apostles, putting them in jail, saying, do not speak in this name any longer. And the apostles boldly saying, should we follow you or God? Satan was was losing ground. But in chapter 6, the devil tries a new tactic. A tactic maybe of, well, distraction. When you get your eyes off the goal, you get distracted on something else. It's really easy to start in what they are about to embark in. So he adds some distraction to the menu for church and, see, and lets this play out. He tries to get the church into a fight. An issue arose that really caused the first beginning of a dissension among the church members. The beginning of it. Complaints arose. And you may have had those complainers there that just are going to complain about anything. But some of it was valid. What's the early church going to do? I think this one event was Satan's strongest tool right here at the beginning. He tried the persecution. It didn't work. He tried detaining of the apostles. He tried separating. It's just not going to work. Maybe, maybe if I get them on their unity. Maybe if I stop that. Let's read Acts 6, starting verse 1. But as the believers rapidly multiplied, they were rumbling, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve called a meeting of all the believers. They said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. And so, brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and are full of spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and, and teaching the word. Everyone liked this idea, and they chose the following. Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, uh, Perminas, and Nicholas of Antioch, an earlier convert to the Jewish faith. These seven were presented by the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. So God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. So that's the scenario. We have the, the setup here. We have a conflict arising. What's going to happen? I think there's several things that we can learn about conflict just from this scripture. Handling problems de- demands some. De- you see, in Acts one or Acts six, verse one, you have the, this this conflict that is starting between the Hebrew-speaking believers and the Greek-speaking believers. In Jewish society, the widows—it's all revolving around the widows. The widows here. They were particularly needy and dependent. See, the man was the one who was the breadwinner. The man was the one who took care of everyone. And whenever he died and left a widow, especially if that widow did not have a family that could take him in, that widow needed the help of the community. The Old Testament is full of ways, like it, on that whole process, that if the family doesn't take her in, if the relatives don't, then the community has to take care of her. Widows and orphans both in this group. New Testament picks up on this, uh, this whole idea. This is, taking care of widows is a big thing. So with this complaint, let's not just water it down here. This is a legit, tough issue for the early church. 
this conflict within uh, the, this community, this Christian community, really came as a result of several factors. Number one, Satan. Satan was at work behind the scenes, stirring up this division. So let's, let's give credit where credit's due. Satan is the one causing the dissension, or at least providing opportunity for it. But number two, he was working with something that was already, already there. If you notice, you have Hebrew-speaking Jews and Greek-speaking Jews. Well, the Hebrew-speaking Jews are the ones that lived among Palestine close to Jerusalem. This is a tight-knit group already. They have an understanding of the Jewish system. The Greek-speaking Jews are the ones that lived outside in the pagan world, if you will. They were among the Greeks. Now, they were still Jews who became Christians at this point. They're all still Jews, but there's an automatic language barrier, if nothing else. That, that's got to be tough in some ways. And it ended up being that the Greek widows felt like they were getting shorted on their daily rations. I think another possible thing for the, the conflict, another stepping stone for Satan to be able to use, was this church was growing, growing by leaps and bounds. And if you know of anything with companies, with churches, whatever, if, if it's growing, there's a lot of things that might get missed in the process things can kind of fall through the cracks. And this is maybe Satan just taking a hold of something that may have started to slip through the cracks, and he just takes it and says, all right, deal with this, early church. Let's see where you where turn out here. The church was experiencing just growing pains. And this was making it difficult for the apostles to minister to everybody. This church was sharing in everything, People were selling fields, giving to the apostles' feet to distribute among them. But someone was saying it's not equal, not right. In this case, it seems to be a real problem, but are complaints always valid? It's one of the first things I I was taught in in some of my classes there at Harding with, with conflict resolution is that you are always taught to listen to the complaints but to learn the validity of them. To see if they're actually valid and to have discernment. Handling problems, demands, discernment. The word here for rumblings or complaint, depending on uh, what your version says, um, is a Greek word that just has an unpleasant meaning, unpleasant idea about it. It's the same word that whenever the Hebrew Bible is translated into Greek, in the Greek Septuagint, it is the same word that used, they used for the Israelites when they complained against Moses in Exodus 16 and Numbers 14. The same word is, is also the idea of murmuring. Now, I can see how complaining can be, can be beneficial, can be positive in some ways. If I have a, a bad waiter at a restaurant or I have a bad experience at a restaurant and I feel you know, file a complaint with that restaurant, they're going to get better. So that's maybe a a good constructive way of having a complaint. But murmuring, murmuring, in in my mind, always turns out bad. I've never really seen an instance where where murmuring is a good thing. Now let me explain a little bit about murmuring. Uh, And the the indication here of what's happening is that Whenever I complain and go to authorities and go to those in charge and present a complaint, I'm expecting a result. 
I'm, I'm expecting something to change, and I'm going to the right people for that. But murmuring is, has more so the connotation of going to my own peers, going to the people that might be involved with the same situation and just talking it up, making the situation worse than it really is in some ways. But you get those supporters behind you and you get this whole crowd that is murmuring and it has potential to be a very bad thing. The, the connotation of murmuring is what is used here in Acts 6, verse 1. That they were murmuring because they were being discriminated against. What's, what's going to happen? How many, how many churches have been destroyed by a spirit of murmuring? How long does it take a spirit of dissension to cause division in the church? When believers, I believe, are unhappy and they begin to murmur, the first place they need to look for a problem is within their own hearts. That a lot of times murmuring is an issue within ourselves and we just find people that fall upon our, our, our hearts. Ken Taylor in his Romans for the Family Hour relates this story. One day, a family traveling down the highway between Johnston and Jamestown stopped at Farmer Jones's place for a drink of water, which he gladly gave them. Where are you heading, he asked them. We are moving from Johnston to, to Jamestown uh, to live, they, they told him. Can you tell us what the people are like? What kind of people we're going to meet there? Well, what kind of people did you, did you find where you lived before? Farmer Jones asked. Oh, they were the very worst kind. The people said they were gossipy and unkind and indifferent. We are glad to be moving away. And Farmer Jones said, Well, I'm afraid to tell you that you're going to find the same in Jamestown. The next day, another car stopped and the same conversation took place. These people were moving from, uh, to Jamestown too. What kind of neighbors will we find there, they asked. Well, said Farmer Brown, what kind of neighbors did you have where you, where you lived before? Oh, they were the very best. They were so kind and considerate. This almost broke our hearts to have to move away. Well, Farmer Jones said, you will find exactly the same kind here. Isn't that true? Isn't that true that sometimes we, we cast ourselves upon other people? We expect them that they're, they're thinking the exact same thing we are. And it can cause problems. Murmuring has to be dealt with before it divides a church. The apostles had to discern the, the, the validity of the problem here to understand where to go. Once they kind of understood it, they knew the next thing was that they had to be decisive. Handling problems requires decisiveness. How would, how would the apostles deal with this problem? It was going to fall straight on their laps. You have the Greek widows and the Hebrew widows. How are you going to reconcile this? Well, they, they had several options. One... They, they could have ignored the problem. I was taking a multiple choice test in, in high school one day, and it's one of those where you have, the, you know, have your questions on one piece of paper with your ABCD answers, your multiple choice, and on another piece of paper you had the number of the question and four bubbles beside it, A, B, C, and D, and you'd fill each one in. I hated those for several reasons, but this is the main reason. As I was going through and filling out those little bubbles, I came to a question that I'm, I wasn't sure of the answer, so I was like, I'll just skip it. I'll, I'll come back to it later. So I kept on going, and as I got close to the end of my test, I looked, and I had plenty of time left. So I was like, good, I can go answer that question. As I went back to answer it, I realized on my answer sheet, I didn't skip the blank. Every question from that one down, I found the number, and it was a whole lot long on that test 
was going to be wrong because I'd filled in the wrong circle. I wasn't watching on the line. Just by ignoring one small detail, why one problem became a huge problem. Isn't that how it works sometimes? When we ignore something so small that seems so insignificant, it turns out to be something huge. They could have ignored it. They could have resented the problem. They could have taken that criticism personally. Could have shifted the blame. Peter's saying, all right, Bartholomew, that was your job. What are you doing? Taking criticism personally is, boy, it's hard not to do. Preacher, I, I, I didn't like your sermon today. That's really hard not to take offense to. But it could just be that the person doesn't like Acts. Okay. Doesn't mean they don't like me. But that's hard to hear. It's hard to hear and, and discern correctly. They could have resented the problem. They could have overreacted to the problem as well. Sometimes the temptation is to overreact and cause a bigger problem than what was originally there. A farmer was, was plowing his corn a hot day whenever he heard a scratching sound. He heard a, heard a scratching sound. He turned around and saw a mouse that was just gnawing on a stalk of corn. The, the farmer thought of all the long hours that he had spent clearing the land, cultivating it, planting, watering, just building up this crop, and a mouse was there to destroy it. And he just was upset. So he grabbed a stick and just started going after that mouse, chasing it down, swinging, whacking, anything he could do to take that mouse. Finally, he, d- he delivered the lethal blow and stopped the mouse. Problem solved. Except whenever he looked up and realized that he destroyed more than just one stalk of corn in the process. Sometimes overreaction is our, in church, it's almost our knee-jerk response is to overreact. Elderships do this, and it affects, all in the name of keeping peace, but it sometimes can have the negative effect. But the apostles here, they could have done all that stuff. What they did instead was they faced the problem. They faced it straight on. They called a meeting of all the believers. They knew they had to take action, but action needed to be good and beneficial, not just action because something needed to happen. They needed to be decisive and faithful. And in this particular instance, it required some delegation. A lot of problems, whenever you handle them, sometimes will require delegation. The apostles had already, had already declared in, in verse 2 that we apostles should spend our time teaching the Word of God, not running a food program. And again in verse 4, then we apostles can spend our time in prayer teaching the Word. If you were to take those concepts, those two verses there at first glance, it might be easy to read that the apostles were just saying, we're too good to serve tables. After all, we're apostles. We're the ones that walked with Jesus. Let's pick out seven flunkies. Let's not call them that, but let's pick out seven flunkies uh, who can can serve this issue. We'll devote ourselves to the tremendously tedious task of praying and preaching. You know, sometimes I have to watch what I say because that's not how I want to be taken. That that job is below me. Someone else can come and do it. 
But if you read, read it that way, if you read that's what the apostles are saying, you're missing the meaning of this message. The apostles were convinced that their primary calling was to minister to, in the Word of God, to bring it to the people. This is what Jesus told them to do. And instead of trying to attach blame anywhere, instead of blaming, well, you widows just aren't asking for it, or whatever it might have come about, they took the responsibility and they delegated it. Verse 3, And so, brothers, like seven men who are well-respected and full of the Spirit and wisdom, we will give them this responsibility. There's no hint that the apostles regarded this as something inferior or beneath them. It was just entirely a question of, here's a need. These men are called. It's a question of need and calling. Does this kind of sound like something in the Old Testament to you? You may not be going down the same path as with me, so I'll just tell you what I'm thinking. In the Old Testament with Moses, he's leading all this multitude of people coming out of Egypt. And they see him as the leader, and so they also see him as a judge. And so they're bringing their disputes to him, they're bringing all their issues to him, and he's having to work through them and talk about them and, and, and judge rightly. And his father Jethro comes to him and says here in Exodus 18 18 that you are going to wear yourself out and the people too. This job is too heavy a burden for you to handle all by yourself. That this deciding, being the judge of the whole nation, everyone bringing their complaints was just taking way too much time. And so Jethro's advice is to delegate responsibility. Select men and you can probably read this list from verse, four, verse 3, who are respected, who are full of the Spirit, who have wisdom. Let them be judges among the people, and then if they need to bring something to you, they can. For this job, the apostles laid out those spe- specific qualifications. No job was too small to require good men. If you notice here, these men were chosen from among them. who were well-respected, well men of good reputation. They had character. These men were of spiritual standing, full of the Spirit, and of men of intelligence, full of wisdom. These men were chosen to solve the problem, to take care of it. Sometimes solving problems requires a delegation. But handling the problem always produces dividends. Especially in this case, if you read there in verse 7. So God's message continued to spread. The number of believers grew, uh, greatly increased in Jerusalem, and many of Jews' priests were converted too. The first result of handling this problem was unity was restored. There was the possibility of a break in the church, and they were able to restore unity, bring everybody back together. But that in and of itself wasn't even the full, full job. From there, because they had unity, they were able to focus their efforts on where it was supposed to go. And many more believed. They were evangelistic. Everyone liked this idea, according to verse 5. And so, they pulled back together. The church was never meant to be a place of stagnant immobilization, but a place of involvement. People who, who study church growth and study how churches grow and and go through that process, tell us that in order to have a healthy church, 60% 
of, your, of the members must be involved in some sort of ministry. I personally believe that number's too small. I think the Bible says that every one of us should be involved in his ministry, in Christ's ministry, in some way, shape, or form. If the widows are being neglected, it's time to start serving tables. If the children's classes don't have a teacher, it's time to step up. We are not only be careful not to complain, but also we must be willing to serve. After the restoration of unity, verse 7, that the believers increased in Jerusalem, and many priests were convicted or converted too. Let's not pass that over too fast. The priests were converted. That's an impressive thing. These are Jewish priests. These are the ones that have spent their life studying the will of God and giving it to the people. And because I think it's a direct relation of how the apostles handled this conflict, that the priests became part of it. I think that's impressive. I think there's something here that ought to speak to every, every one of our hearts. Something that may be close, closer than we necessarily like. Are we praying for revival in our church? Have you ever gone, gone to the Lord in prayer and said, you know, Lord, please revive our church, and have you continued by saying, and let it start with me? If there's something hindering me in that process, Lord, let it be known. Let me know where I need. I think when the apostles dealt with this problem, they jumped straight to the heart of the issue. They didn't skirt around it. They didn't fight it head on. They found the heart of it and effected the change from there. Because we never once again hear of a complaint from the widows. So you know that their heart was right in the process. Lord, show me where I need to grow so that your kingdom can grow. I hope that's our prayer every day. I hope our prayer is, is a very personal effect on ourselves. Because with that, God's kingdom can grow. And God's kingdom will so if you have any need, need of this congregation to confess, to reacquaint, to just let us know where you're at, or to be baptized and become part of this, we would welcome any and all of that. Please come forward as you stand and sing.